Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Okay, my friends, today we got a special one. And uh, of course, they're all special, right? But uh, today is kind of near and dear to my heart. You may or may not know this about me, but I am a lover of the outdoors and love to camp, love to canoe, love to hike. Spent lots of time years actually if you add up all the months i've spent years out living in the bush it's probably been shit i don't know if you add up all the weeks and months maybe you know close to two years of my life certainly a year and a half of my life living and camping in the out of doors which you know makes me who i am i'm really grateful for my time spent in nature lost my religion a long time ago. So for me, you know, one of the only things that's left I deem sacred is nature and connection to the universe, connecting to the natural process of things. And, you know, if we lose our nature, we lose ourselves. If we lose wilderness, we lose ourselves. If we lose our oceans, we lose ourselves. It's true. We're animals living on this planet and our ecosystem sustains all of us. Not just the whales that we want to save or the polar bears we want to save, but you and me. And the only way we have life and health on this planet is if the planet is alive and healthy. Unfortunately, of course, our species, human beings, have done a horrible job of looking after this precious place we call planet Earth. And governments and corporations don't do enough to protect the commonwealth for all mankind. There's all kinds of reasons for that, greed being one of them, perhaps the number one issue. And so we have to do what we can to speak truth to power and fight and protest and live more sustainably, both here at home and our houses, you know, recycling or driving, you know, electric cars or whatever we can do to reduce our carbon footprint. But we also can support others who are doing important work. And, you know, I've had my share of time spent. I was on the board of the 
Center for Biological Diversity for a couple of years, and they do amazing, important work protecting endangered species around the planet. And I encourage you to check them out. But today's episode is about another important special organization that you have to check out and support, Pangea Seed. Today, I am talking to the executive director and founder, Trey Packard. And Trey's work is truly special. His passion is protecting our oceans and the fragile life in it. And his work is focused on raising awareness about the fragility of our oceans and activating people to make change and make different choices. And Pangea Seed's strategy around this activism, around this awareness building, is through art, the power of art, artivism, they call it. And Trey has, and his organization, Pangea Seed, has worked with artists all over the world to create, I think, well over 450 murals around the world to raise awareness about the health of our oceans and sustainability issues and protecting the fragile life that lives inside our oceans. And so Pangea Seed is a very important, amazing organization that is working with some top artists around the world. We just had a few weeks ago, Nichos on the show. Nichos is an artist that has worked with uh, Trey at Pangea Seed. Other artists of note, of course, the one and only Shepard Ferry and Tristan Eaton being a couple key names, but many, many, many artists all over the world have supported the important work of Trey and the team there at Pangea Seed. And so I was honored, very honored to have Trey on the show to come and talk about the work that they're doing and specifically the book that they're publishing, this amazing limited edition. I think there's 2000 copies, gorgeous book featuring all of the artwork and murals around the world that they have uh, created and produced to raise awareness about their important work. So, you know, get outside guys, enjoy this beautiful planet. But remember, if you enjoy it, you've got to protect it. And if you don't have time to go pick up trash or try to protest evil organizations pillaging and raping our planet, perhaps you have some treasure you can donate and you can give some money and earn a tax deduction by helping fund the the important work of organizations like Pangea Seed. So I encourage you to check them out, donate to them you know, buy some art. They sell art. They sell the books. They have other items that you could buy that uh, proceeds go back into their work. And so without further ado, I want to get into this episode because it's so important to me. I just, you know, I wouldn't be who I am today without nature and wilderness and spending time in the great outdoors. And our oceans are so critical. (laughs) So critical. We lose our oceans, we lose our lives. So the work that Pangea Seed is doing is absolutely vital. And I couldn't uh, be more impressed with Trey and the work that they're doing. And so this conversation is a good one. And he and I bonded over our mutual passion and love for the outdoors and the work that they're doing. So without further ado, let's get into this episode and hear from the one and only Trey Packard of Pangea Seed. Trey Packard, man. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Scott. Thank you, man. Or should I refer to you as sourdough? <laughs> I've been called worse, believe me. Yeah, <laughs> sourdough is my on-air persona. You are welcome to call me sourdough. It's a long story. I won't bore you with it now as to why. Gotcha. That's a whole nother podcast. Maybe someday over a beer, I will fill you in. But I'll tell you what, I've been an admirer of your guys' work for a long time. Being an outdoor lover myself, of course, having been involved in environmental causes over the years as well, your work is near and dear to my heart. So when our mutual colleague Heidi Johnson at Hijinx PR was promoting your new book and all the good stuff you guys are up to right now, I said, hey, you know, can we get them on the show and help amplify and boost and promote the important work you guys are doing? So thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for giving us the platform to share what we do, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and big shout out to Heidi and the Hijinx team. They've just been absolutely fantastic through this journey and helping us get Passion Project out to you know the masses. 
Absolutely. No, they're a great group. We've worked with them for years. I've known Heidi for years. They're world-class, uh, wonderful human beings. So they're lucky to have you. You're lucky to have them. Yeah, we're in good hands and it's a big mutual admiration society. So <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, your cause is near and dear to, you know, so many people's hearts because in part because I think all of us feel like we're, I mean, let me be frank. I mean, I think a lot of us feel like we're fucked. You know what I mean? When it comes to climate change, when it comes to the environment, when it comes to conservation, when it comes to the health of our oceans, we don't see the governments doing anything really. We don't see the, you know, corporations doing much. It's a lot of fucking lip service and, you know, a lot of talk, no action. And, you know, it takes organizations like Pangea Seed to speak truth to power, to keep, you know, raising a flag and, and fighting the good fight. And so thank you for the work that you guys are doing, man. You're giving us hope. No, thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate those kind words. And yeah, I mean, like, I think that's one of the reasons that I started the organization when I did back in, gosh, let's see now, 2009 was kind of like the origin of it. And yeah, I just kind of looked at the state of the planet at that time, you know, and we're talking, you know, over 10 years ago at this point. And it was, it was one of those situations where, you know, the governments aren't doing anything, the corporations aren't doing anything. And like, I felt compelled to do something on my own. And I wanted to like, you know, at first help out with a group or something. And this was, you know, circa 2009, like I said. And at that time, the conservation movement was either kind of conservative or militant and nothing really kind of like connected with me. So at that time, I was living in Asia and doing a lot of documentation of the illegal illegal wildlife trade over there. And I had a moment in 2008 where I uncovered the largest industrial shark finning operation in Asia. And that really had an impact on me from what I you know, had experienced and seen before. And I really felt compelled to do something like by shifting gears and looking through, looking at this through a different lens. And I grew up in a family of artists. My mom was a professional artist and art teacher, and my grandfather was a professional musician. So we were always encouraged to you know, problem solve through creative ways and creativity when I was a kid. And living in Asia at that time, it still is, it's really challenging to encourage people to change cultural habits and look at things through, you know, a different lens, so to speak. And I felt art was that kind of like, could be a a great driver or communication tool to get people talking about things that they otherwise wouldn't and see it in a new light. And so in 2009, I organized the first kind of Pangea Seed event. And it was interesting. Like I reached out to artists that I was collecting at that time because I was collecting prints and different things like this around that time. And just suddenly, you know, several artists just replied and were like, yeah, how can we help? And So I organized kind of like this awareness fundraiser event, and that was basically the origin for it. And we kind of like continued on a similar kind of trajectory for the next couple of years because I was doing, you know, my job with documentation and like we started getting like attention in different magazines like High Fructose and Juxtapose. And we were asked to bring the project over to the States and we did a show with Ken Harmon and Spoke Art. This would have been like 2011 and like it just kept growing and growing and like it was either going to stay a passion project or I could kind of like, you know, just cut the lines and really go for it. And yeah, you know, after, you know, some serious like soul searching, I decided to do that and followed my passion. And here we are, you know, 12 years later. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. (laughs) And like this year is the the 10 year anniversary of Pangea Seed Foundation. So like I relocated back to the States in 2012 we incorporated as a you know 501c3 nonprofit organization, developed our board, our program areas, and then you know just hit the ground running from there. So yeah, so back to what you were saying, you know, celebrating the book that we put together this year. Actually, we've been working on it for the past two years, but we are launching it this year for Earth Week, which is this week. Well, Godspeed, brother. I mean, you know, like this is a, an inspiring, important story, and you sort of touched on a lot of different things. And I want to kind of you know go back a little bit as well because for I mean, sure. That what you said a minute ago about sort of a catalyst for all this for you was discovering this illegal shark finning operation. I mean, take us back to that. I mean, how the hell did you stumble upon that? And then what did you do with that information? I mean, what a gut-wrenching, disgusting, heartbreaking thing to discover. But yet at the same time, you know, what an opportunity to help make change and drive change. You know, take us back to that day and that time. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Southern California and North Texas. My parents divorced when I was a kid. And so, you know, growing up on the coast, I always had a connection and a love and a passion for the oceans. I was always into, I guess, kind of like that type of culture, you know, surfing and skating and everything that kind of came along with it, punk rock and hip hop. And those are the things that inspired me when I was a kid. And like when I really got into art, it was originally through like album covers and skateboard graphics. And I don't think I've changed. I still you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely <you> <laughs> adore. Yeah, right. I still absolutely adore those mediums. Yeah, so I mean, I think I had you know somewhat of an advantage where I had this connection with the oceans, and like I always had a you know a passion and a curiosity. And I think when I was in like my mid-teens, I got scuba certified, and you know there were certain species that I always kind of like you know was attracted to, and like I've always had a passion for sharks. I think with most little kids especially boys, it's either kind of like sharks or dinosaurs. And I was always kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah, in the right, sharks. That's again, right. My son is all about That's another dinosaurs. thing that, that's never changed. <laughs> yeah. So when I moved to Asia, like that was this great opportunity to, you know, use that as a springboard to travel throughout, you know, these, these areas that I had always seen in like that geo and, you know, discovery and different things like that. And, you know, go to these like far off areas and experience these species that, you know, are hyper unique and incredibly important. And once they started getting out to these areas, I started seeing, you know, trash in the water and, you know, like these areas that were supposed to be rich in marine biodiversity were just like decimated by like, you know, cyanide fishing and dynamite fishing and just overfishing in general and pollution. And it, it was really a wake up call. And so I had a friend by coincidence who was doing a lot of documentation at that time. And like I studied mass comm and journalism and sociology in university and took photography classes and they always had a camera in my hand and like he brought me along on an assignment that he was doing that was focusing on overfishing in, in a certain area of Asia. And from there, I got the opportunity to start working with him on different projects and then started getting some solo projects. And it came down to like, you know, a passion for, you know, the species that I cared about and doing the research, you know, the late nights, the, you know, I guess the, you know, there's a lot of, you know, fixing and just, you know, kind of, you know, being incredibly cautious because at the end of the day, what we're documenting are people's livelihoods despite the fact that, you know, it's an endangered species or that it's overfished or that it's threatened or whatever. And a lot of people, you know, frown on that exposure. So there was a lot of caution around that. So like to get to that point where we located and were able to go in and document the largest industrial shark finning operation in Asia, that was like a two-year pathway. And once we finally got there and we were kind of on the killing floor, again, it was just this kind of moment for me personally that shifted something internally. And it was just like, you know, I understand the importance of documentation and, you know, getting that information out to the public. And, you know, that is a way for people to, you know, take action and, you know, maybe see it in a new light. But at the same time, I think you can only get so far with death and destruction in terms of like imagery and the messaging. You got to give people hope at the end of the day. And despite the fact that the oceans, you know, connect us all, you know, it's the life support system of the planet. Every second breath, you know, we take comes from the oceans without healthy oceans. Life on land is absolutely impossible. Despite that, there's a major disconnect between people in general and the oceans. You know, it's very much out of sight, out of mind. You know, a lot of people that even live along the coastline are afraid to swim or don't know how to swim. So how can you get people to care about something that they don't have a connection to? And that's where I felt art could be this kind of like connecting point. And it has been, you know, I mean, what started out as kind of like a, I guess, a novel idea you know, in an apartment in Tokyo, you know, over a decade ago, has turned into a global movement. And we've been able to work with, you know, some of the most, you know, renowned and sought after, you know, contemporary artists of our time, because I think that artists tend to be, you know, a little more tuned in and have empathy when it comes to, you know, these issues and want to use their platforms and their skill sets to help make a difference. So, yeah, I think, you know, just kind of, it was one of those things I kind of put it out there to the universe to some degree and, you know, people responded. So. Yeah, man. I mean, it's the power of art, right? And you hit the nail on the head too, and uh, about a couple of different things. One is because so much of this is about changing culture, right? So whether it's the culture of, you know, communities, American communities, American kids who have no connection to the water, to the ocean. I remember telling an environmental friend of mine years ago, you know, he's very much involved in the end endangered species movement and protecting endangered species. And I said, to him, you know, because they're rich white donors, we're, you're getting older and dying off. And I said, you know, until you make your cause relevant to kids of color in the city who have never seen a tree, you know, you're kind of fucked. Definitely. You know what I mean? And and so yeah. when you saw that, yeah. you're right. Like, like, how can I, 
you know, the, these kids that, you know, the ocean's so fundamental to life on earth and yet people are just connected. So how can you use art to connect people, you know, in a meaningful way to the oceans? I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, man. I mean, it's like, yeah, you connect to things that are important to them. You know, if it's a young person you're trying to connect to art, music, skating, sport, whatever it is, you know, it's like, if you can build those bridges, you know, and so culture is so important. And the other thing you, you hit on a minute ago which is also so important, which gets back to change and, you know, really moving the needle because so much of this environmental impact that we're talking about is driven by mm -hmm. cultures who are trying to make a living, right? Like they're dirt poor. They don't, you know, have skills or education or whatever. And so all they maybe have is fishing or whatever the case might be. And of course, the more fish they catch, the more money they make. And, you know, right. I forget who said it, but, but somebody a lot smarter than me once said culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, you know, and so like, that's what we're talking about. Like, how do we help lift up these communities so that they too want to protect their oceans and give them new skills and give them new opportunities, you know, because of course they're going to outfish their livelihood anyway. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's kind of like, you know, I guess the billion dollar question is, you know, how to influence these people kind of across the board about, you know, why it's important to protect it, you know, not just because of the services that it provides us in terms of like, you know, oxygen and, you know, regulating climate and weather and so on. But, you know, like in, in a lot of these communities, like you were mentioning, you know, that are developing nations and so on, you know, these are like generational kind of like occupations. And, you know, this is something that they're wanting to pass on to the next generation as well, you know, and like, I think at the end of the day, most people do care about that next generation, especially if you're a father or a grandfather, mother, or, you know, grandmother, so on. I think most people do care about what, you know, what we're go going to lead to them. But at the same time, you know, we're not seeing a lot of action around that. And in, in a lot of these developing nations, as you mentioned, I've had the opportunity to travel to a lot of these places, both you know, through the lens of documentation and also, you know, hosting projects like we do through our Seawalls Artists for Oceans Public Art Program and so on. And it's the same story, like everywhere I go, man. And yeah, like, I mean, pretty much everywhere I travel is the same issues that are impacting the same people. I mean, in the solutions, the science, the tech is out there, but it's not happening fast enough, you know? And I think that's one reason that we do what we do through Pangea Foundation especially through our Seawalls Artists for Oceans program, which is our public art program, where we like to say we take the oceans into the streets and we're bypassing all the bullshit, all the red tape, all the bureaucracy, because we realized early on that, you know, through public art, through street art, that it's free source, it's democratic. You know, you can bring it into a community, into a neighborhood and really transform the way that people look at the environment and their connection to it. And through that program, we started that in 2014, because at first we were kind of doing gallery shows and things like that, and which was great. But we realized quite quickly that, you know, not everybody's going to walk in off the street, you know, to a gallery. And in a lot of these communities that really need this information and, and, you know, better education, there's not a space for something like that. But with public art, all you need is a wall, you know, or a house or, you know, a boat or whatever, you know. I mean, you can paint on anything pretty much. And the other great thing about that format is that, you know, a lot of times it can be like, you know, permanent or semi-permanent, you know, I mean, we put up these massive murals and it can stay within a community until they want to take it down, you know, and we've just had, you know, over the years, we started that program in 2014. So we're about at the eight year mark with it this summer. And we've created over 450 murals in 18 countries. That Amazing. Are all Congratulations, man. Bravo. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. And that's been kind of like our I guess, you know, main focal point to the organization. We're small internally as a lot of nonprofits are, but we're super nimble. And Seawalls Artists for Oceans has kind of like taken over a lot of our time. So like with each project, you know, it's usually about 12 to 18 months in the planning because with the program being nomadic, it's kind of like the circus coming to town, but we want to be able to create a legacy. So, you know, it's, it's you know, finding the right stakeholders and the right partners and, you know, the right locations so that after, you know, we have completed the project, they take ownership and use those murals, you know, as advocacy tools, you know, for those specific issues. So we work with scientists and researchers and other nonprofits in those regions to make sure that we're speaking to issues that are relevant. And yeah, it's just been an incredible program, man. Like part of this book that we've created for the 10 year anniversary, it's called Sea Change, A Decade of Artivism for Oceans. And it contains a curated selection of murals that we've created from the Seawalls program. We have another program that we have called Printed Oceans that focuses on limited edition art prints that are all education focused and focus on ocean environmental issues. 
And that's one way that we do fundraising. Like I've never been the type of person to just like, you know, hey, just donate kind of thing. Like I want to be able to give something in return. It's this really great platform where, you know, it supports artists because a portion of the proceeds go back, you know, to help them. Portion goes to support us. And then these artworks go into homes, classrooms, offices all around the world. We just did a really big drop with Shepherd Ferry over the weekend of an art print that was based on a seawalls mural that he created for us last year in Boston on the top, on the front of the New England Aquarium, which is like one of the most renowned science institutions and aquariums in, the, in North America. It's like an 80 foot mural. It's massive and super high traffic. And, you know, you have this really bold, important statement about, you know, the people's connections to the oceans and, you know, why it's important to protect it. And yeah, it just goes to show, you know, the power of art, like you were saying before, and, you know, what an incredible tool it can be to, you know, create action and advocacy and, you know, help fund, you know, organizations and efforts like ours. And yeah, we're just so proud to be able to release this book this week. Like I said, two years in the planning. I've got it right here. It's a beast. Yeah. <laughs> I want to buy one. If I can put my dibs in now, I want one of those. That's amazing. We got to get you one, man. We got to yeah, get you one. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. I worked in publishing for 10 years, my first 10 years of my my young career, my 20s. And believe me, I know how difficult it is to publish books, <laughs> you know, oh, from a design yeah. and printing perspective. And uh, kudos. That's a hell of it, a project. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, it's been a mission. Like we came up with, well, we knew the anniversary was coming up and we wanted to be ahead of the curve, but we didn't know like how deep we were going to go on this. And we knew that we wanted to do something that was incredibly special, that would honor the artists that have dedicated so much time and energy to our project over the years, the communities, and really highlight this in a, you know, a truly special way. So we just, we wanted to go kind of like, I guess, in, in that direction of kind of like a Tash and Large format, you know, yes. like something special, you know, it's not just a book, you know, this is an It's experience. a collectible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're doing a limited edition of 2000. And like one of our advisory board members, Tristan Eaton, if you're familiar with Tristan's work. Uh, yes. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. He's an incredible and, human being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Amazing human. But I reached out to him and that's one reason we have these people, you know, that we really care about and, you know, admire and, and you know, that support us and we have them, we've got a really incredible advisory board. So I reached out to Tris because he, he tends to, you know, have a really interesting kind of perspective and he's very, you know, candid and, you know, open about, you know, his experiences. And for me, I think, you know, running my own nonprofit, that's been one of the biggest kind of, I guess, things that have helped me is like, you know, having the support network and reaching out to people that have kind of gone through the growing pains and, you know, can give us some, some really, you know, insightful perspective. And so Trish was like, fuck publishers. He was like, do it yourself. He was like, that way you can do whatever you want with it. And with this being so special, you're going to want to be able to do whatever you want with it. So we followed that and he connected us with his printer and it's just been a really great process. So like my wife and I, she's our director of operations have been with me pretty much since day one, but she and I, we did a lot of the curation for the book. And then we worked with an incredible team out of France that did the layout and like original artwork for the cover. And yeah, so it's been quite the journey, but yeah, we're super stoked to finally have it here. And yeah, like I said, we did a pre-order last week for friends and family. And then we did the drop with Shepard with the print and the book bundle. And yeah, we're off to the races, man. Like we've had a great response so far. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, anything we can do to, you know, give people hope and power and raise awareness. I mean, my God, I saw something the other day that, so scary given everything you're talking about. We talk about the health of our oceans. I mean, two sure. things. One is there was this expedition a couple of years ago, right? Where these marine scientists or oceanographers took a submarine basically down to the deepest known point in the ocean. I'm forgetting what it's called right now, but it's uh, has a name, of course, something Gulf, I think. Anyway, it's the deepest point in the ocean. And they go all the way down there and they find plastic. They find a fucking straw, a sipping straw down at the very bottom of the ocean. Right. And then you're like, holy fuck, but wait, it gets worse because of course now they're seeing saying that plastics are in our food supply. Exactly. You know, the, the, now, the fish are eating bodies. the plastics and we eat yeah. the fish. Yeah. Yeah. There was a study that came out. It was a year or two ago that was talking about like, I think annually like humans consume like a credit card's worth of plastic per year. And that's through, you know, the food that we're eating and, you know, all that is due to, you know, human impact. So like every piece of plastic ever created, you know, is still on this planet. We're still creating like a ridiculous amount of virgin plastic, which we don't need to. 
the tech is there, the, the science is out there where we can, you know, repurpose what, what's existing. And yeah, it's shocking. Like you were saying, you know, like there's no place untouched on the planet right now. Like I remember, I think it was early in the pandemic, like the window to kind of summit Everest is usually in like May. And uh, there was a story that came out a couple of years ago talking about just like how Everest has turned into kind of like a dump because like, you know, all the climbers, you know, that are going to this distance, they're just leaving all their gear there. You know, and it's like nothing sacred, you know, no place on the planet is not impacted by, you know, what we're doing as humans. And I think that's kind of like, you know, a basic message that we have in GSE Foundation is that, you know, this is the reality of the issue, but we have the power to change it. You know, it's our everyday consumption habits that are going to decide, you know, the future for ourselves and the future for, you know, the next generation. So, yeah, it's based on how we consume and, you know, how we live our day-to-day lives. Well, and it's also about helping mobilize those organizations, political groups and entities that actually, you know, help us change hearts and minds. Right. And, and, and you mentioned, sure. you mentioned a minute ago, and we, we, we've already complained about what governments and corporations aren't doing, but you just said something that got me thinking, you know, you talked about nothing, you said nothing is sacred anymore. And, you know, and that's basically true. Like we are, you know, seemingly a culture of consumption, you know, at least here in the West, right? You know, Americans, you know, capitalism, consumption, it's all built on disposable consumer goods. And yet here in the West, to the extent that the West is, you know, rooted in Judeo-Christianity, you know, I'm sorry, but we've got to, we've got to point our hands, uh, point our fingers at the Catholic church. I mean, if there was one organization that could help move the needle and say, you know what, the earth is sacred, you know, please respect it. You know, it feels like the, you know, Catholic church could help us. I mean, why do you think the organizations like the Catholic church don't do more? Interesting question. Like, I don't have a lot of insight on this. I I have read, you know, some specific articles and had, you know, conversations with people about this as well. Like, you know, I think the religious community in general, there's, you know, a belief that, you know, the world, you know, was created kind of in a specific image and, you know, the everything that has kind of been created naturally has been created through, you know, that image and, and like, you know, like it's important to protect that. So yeah, man, I think it's a good question. There are some people that try to leverage that, you know, as a way to, I guess, raise environmental awareness and, you know, shed a light on, on, you know, individual impact. But yeah, I don't see it done kind of like on a mass level where we're, we're like, you know, but I think there was something I saw recently, like I think it might have just been during Easter over the weekend where the Pope was talking about, you know, climate change. So he's actually, you know, acknowledging it and and starting to talk about it. So, I mean, I guess that's one step in the right direction. But again, <laughs> well, that's better than know. nothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, as a born again pagan myself, you know, it is a fascinating thing to think about because, you know, I know that you know, Christianity teaches us that, you know, God gave us dominion over the planet and stuff. And, and I think that that sense of entitlement, you know, oftentimes hurts the environmental cause because I think, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of people out there that think, well, you know, you know, God's in control and it's going to be all okay. And you're like, no, 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 God helps those. As I understand it, God helps those who help themselves and we have to help each other. We have to help ourselves. And we do that by showing this earth is sacred and that we care about God's creation and we're going to look after it and we're going to protect it. And we're not going to, you know, use plastic straws (laughs) or whatever. Anyway, it's crazy out there. And then, I mean, like you can kind of like, you know, cross section that with kind of like, you know, politics at the moment as well. You know, like with I remember when, you know, the ban started even being talked about, you know, regarding like plastic straws, you know, people just got up in arms around it, you know, just because they felt like the government was taking away their right, you know, at the end of the day. And yeah, it's it's fascinating, you know, how people will politicize or, you know, kind of like spin things to their agenda. Totally. You hit it on the head, which is this notion of like. You know, this false argument that, you know, good, sensible, sustainable policies and regulations are an impediment on our freedom, because the reality is those sustainable policies and regulations actually protect our freedoms for generations, because if we don't have a plan, exactly, we don't have freedom. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the short sightedness and like, you know, like people kind of, you know, not connecting the dots is something that, 
through my journey as an environmentalist has been, you know, incredibly frustrating because, you know, the issues that I was concerned about when I got into the movement, you know, 15 years ago or so, or they haven't changed, you know, I mean, there's been little wins here and there, but I mean, the war is just, you know, it's worse than ever. And, you know, the predictions are worse than ever. I mean, we're kind of like, you know, in a position now where the science is so exact and like, we know where the tipping point is and like, you know, there's still, you know, we're having multiple high level, you know, government summits and so on, you know, every year talking about the same thing, trying to set targets and nothing happens really, you know, that's really going to change things. So that's, I think, again, you know, something that can continuously is like perplexing and like, I don't understand why, you know, it's so challenging to make big movements at the moment. Well, I tell you what, though, big movements, yes, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful, right, to make big movements? Right, yeah. You know, if all we can do as individuals is small movements, you know, small steps, that's what we need to do. That's what we have to do. 100%. And and that's why, you know, I love what you're doing because you're doing what you can do. You know, I think a lot of people, apathy is as toxic as anything, right? You know, and I just, you know, I had a couple of young girls on the podcast the other day, a 12 year old girl and her 17 year old cousin. And they were, they're of Ukrainian descent. Their parents immigrated here, you know, 20 years ago. They're so moved by what's happening in the Ukraine. She's 12 years old and her cousin's 17 years old. And so what, but they're artists, they think of themselves as artists and they want to be. And so they curated an art exhibition to raise money for humanitarian groups in Ukraine. And Shepard was one of the artists in their show. They somehow connected with him. And, you know, the the point is, is that, you know, if a 12-year-old kid can't stand up and do something meaningful, you know, I better get my 52-year-old ass out of my seat and get busy (laughs) because there's a lot of work to do, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've got a lot of hope when it comes to the younger generation because, Mm. I mean, we're seeing like, you know, these kids mobilize on a level that we've never seen people do before, you know, and so many are tech savvy and, you know, you can connect instantaneously and communicate instantaneously. And I think for that next generation, you know, there's a lot of hope, but the clock is against them right now. You know, it's the old guard, you know, are causing all these issues right now and not making the change that, you know, needs to be made. I just hope that, you know, that generation and those kids, you know, keep those values and that passion, you know, once they're old enough to really be able to, you know, change policy and things like that. And they are doing it right now, you know, yep. but yep. yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, it's great. So I got to tell you, you know, bouncing around here a little bit, Sure. you know, when a few years ago, when you did, you guys were up in Churchill, Manitoba. Yeah. Yeah. That was, right. a, that was an adventure. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that because I actually used to live near Churchill. Where? <laughs> and, That's rare. and when I saw you guys are up there, I was like, oh man, you know, I, I, I wish I could be up there right now. I actually lease some land about 120 miles Southwest of Churchill in the bush and built the log cabin up there and lived up there like Grizzly Adams for a long time. And unfortunately, a forest fire burned everything down a few years ago. But Churchill, I have many, many friends, many memories in Churchill, and it's one of my favorite places. For those people who don't know, Churchill, Manitoba being the polar bear capital of the world, and it's a harsh, harsh place. I mean, when I saw you guys were up there, I was like, holy shit, (laughs) you know, it's like, is the weather going to be your friend? Probably not. (laughs) Nope. No, no, that was like, like, and, and that was through our Seawalls Artists for Oceans program. So we've been able to take this program all over the world, you know, like you're saying, from the polar bear capital of the world, you know, down to, you know, the coral triangle and kind of everywhere in between. And that was just one of those unique opportunities that was presented to us. Like normally through the program, you know, we've got a website, and we've got, you know, all of our social and everything. And people reach out and say, you know, how can we bring this program, you know, to our community? Because we see that it could be very valuable and the community needs it you know, A, from an educational and awareness, you know, standpoint, but also, you know, a beautification opportunity. And in a place like Churchill, it's just got such a crazy and unique history, you know, being a military outpost that was, you know, like thriving, you know, decades ago. And now it's, you know, polar bears outnumber the number of people in the town, you know, so there's like (laughs) all, and it was, a, I guess, a very, you know, common thing that humanity does is, you know, we'll go into an area, we'll populate it, We'll build up once we kind of drain it for what it's worth or what we wanted it for. We just bail 
and leave, you know, a really heavy footprint. And that's what, you know, both the Canadian and the U.S. military did up there. And there's like all these crazy, just like derelict, you know, facilities that are just huge canvases. So an artist that was working up there quite regularly reached out to us to do the project. And so we, you know, kind of like got stuck into it and over probably about like, you know, a 16 month period, pieced it all together, you know, and then brought up, I think we did like 22 murals up there with both, you know, international and local artists. Um, And yeah, it was just such a fascinating experience, you know, like we all had to go through polar bear training, you know? (laughs) Yes. So to be polar bear, I guess, like preparedness training, you know, like where we worked with like kind of like national park kind of like guards and like, you know, learned what to do in, in case, you know, a polar bear did show up on site. And then each mural location had a dedicated bear guard, you know, with someone that sat there with a shotgun all day long while the artist was up on the wall and just kind of looked out for bears, you know, and not to kill the bear, but, you know, there, there's a kind of, it's just to, you know, protect the people that are kind of in that area. And like, Scare it's them just off. the way of yeah. life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's the way of life up there. You know, I mean, we're encroaching on their territory. So I think like the model that the people of Churchill has built is phenomenal, man. Like, I mean, you know, they're not trying to, you know, eradicate or anything like that. They're trying to live in, in, you know, in balance. And there's like a policy, like no locked doors in Churchill, no matter where you go, you don't lock your door in case there is a bear. So someone can kind of jump in somewhere quick. So in, you know, again, it's such a small tight knit community. Everybody knows everybody. And like, I think within like 48 hours, we, you know, were the talk of the town and everybody knew who we were and, you know, people were coming out of their homes and, you know, bringing us mutt talk and all this crazy stuff. And yeah, it was a really beautiful experience. And we Did you happen to get donuts at Gypsies? Of course we did. Like Gypsies <laughs> was like kind of our, our main spot, man. Dude, yeah, Gypsies yeah. is it, man. If you, you know, yeah. if you don't know Gypsies, you don't Great know Churchill. Food. <laughs> Great food. Great food, man. Yeah, totally. And yeah, like it, it was such an adventure. Like, you know, for most of us that were there, nobody had been to an area like that before. And, you know, we had to be very you know, just kind of like, you know, fly by the seat of your pants and, you know, you utilize whatever resources we had. Like we knew that Churchill didn't have like hydraulic lifts and some of the buildings that we were painting were pretty large and we needed that. And we had everything, like everything that we brought in, we wanted to take out as well because we didn't want to leave a footprint up there. And some of our artists use aerosol, some use bucket paint and so on, but we didn't want to leave anything up there. So we wanted to bring everything back. But I think it was like three weeks before we were supposed to be on the ground there was a really heavy late in the year snowfall. And again, like attributed to climate change, a really heavy snowfall. And then that melted. And the only way to get to Churchill from Winnipeg is either by flying or train. And at that point, the tracks got washed out. And I, I don't even know if they're, they've been repaired yet. And this was like, you know, three, four years ago, but the community was completely cut off. So anything that, had, that came into Churchill had to come by plane. And so costs, everything just skyrocketed overnight. And so we we're like, oh God, what are we going to do? Do we need to pull the plug? And we were like, fuck it, let's go for it. And we just got really, you know, creative and, you know, using like local ingenuity, like just, for example, like we ended up borrowing a forklift and putting a massive like metal pallet in it. And we had a dedicated driver for a forklift. And that was our articulating boom lift. <laughs> one of the artists used, you know, I mean, just stuff like that. And then like, we would do a rotation. We had one spider lift. And we would do a rotation with the artists, you know, three hours, you get it at this time, you get it at this time. And everybody worked together to make it happen. And yeah, in the end, we, we created 21 just beautiful, stunning murals that reflected, you know, the biodiversity and the issues, you know, that are impacting it, like, you know, climate change and rising sea levels and so on. And yeah, it was a fascinating experience. And Churchill definitely has a special place in my heart. Please tell me that when it was all done, you guys celebrated at the Legion. Oh yeah, yeah. There was a, there was there was a lot of a lot of I guess celebrating. You know, yeah. <laughs> yes. Every, everybody had a good time because, like you were saying, you know, was you asked if the weather was on our side, and like it was intense, man. I mean, you'd have days where you know you would get these like just ripping Arctic winds, you know, right off the bay that would just cut through anything that you're wearing, and you're freezing your ass off. And then the next day it would be like sweltering and like, oh, that's all swampland through there. So the mosquito blooms, I've never <laughs> seen anything like it, man. Like, I mean, we had artists wearing beekeeper suits because yes, like if you yes. opened your mouth, the mosquitoes were so thick, they'd go in your mouth. I mean, it was, it was gnarly, but the great thing about it, I mean, they're like, there were no complaints. Everybody was just so happy to be there and they soldiered through it and, you know, just created these beautiful works for the community. And yeah, like, I mean, I think, Churchill is one of those places that we get tagged in quite regularly on social media for people going up there, you know, for the polar bears, of course, Northern Lights and beluga whales in the summer. And 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are kind of caught off guard to see these beautiful world-class murals up there, you know. So summer's coming. We're we're on the the brink of summer here. What is happening this summer for you guys in terms of murals and various art productions? Yeah, yeah. So we've got um, a few major projects scheduled for this year. Emeryville, which is right outside of San Francisco, which is in the fall. And then we're going to be going back to the U.S. Virgin Islands to St. Thomas this time in November. So those are our two major seawalls projects this year. Through the summer, my goal is to continue promoting this book and celebrating the 10-year anniversary. So we're going to be doing a book tour. We're locking in all that information. We're aiming to do like West Coast, East Coast. So I think that's probably going to be our travel schedule for the summer. Yeah, fantastic, man. That's wonderful. Yeah, this book, man, this book is so special. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we're we're so so proud of it. Shepard Perry wrote the foreword for it, which was a great honor. And yeah, I mean, it features, you know, artists that I know that you've had on the podcast as well. Like you had Nitro Son recently. That's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Nick is featured in it. And the book is broken up into seven major chapters. And each chapter focuses on like one of the main issues impacting oceans and the environment that we focus on from like, you know, coastal development to biodiversity loss and plastics and pollution and so on, environmental justice. So each chapter has a selection of seawalls, murals, printed oceans, illustrations, underwater photography that I've taken like in my years in the field and, you know, essays and all sorts of interesting things. So yeah, I think people are in for quite a treat with this book, man. It's like, I've never seen anything quite like it. And I love books. Like I'm always collecting and you know, always, you know, just fascinated in terms of like printing techniques and layout and design. And so I think we swung for the fences on this one. And yeah, we really, we really did a great job. To do and that's a large, <laughs> and that's a, and that, that's a large book. I mean, that thing must weigh what, two, three pounds. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a beast, man. It's a beast. Yeah. It's around 140 pages, a three format, you know, hardcover, really unique slip case. And we kind of, you know, did all the bells and whistles with like spot UV treatment and like, you know, embossing and yeah. So we had a lot of fun with it (laughs) and we're calling this volume one. So because like, like, again, we were only able to feature, you know, 50 murals and, you know, like 30 illustrations and things like that in it, but we've got such an incredible catalog of work. So we want to continue this and, you know, do a volume two probably in the next couple of years. Well, listen, I mean, you know, the arts are not possible. And well, the arts live on and artists live on in large part because of their patrons, people that support the arts. I mean, it is a very tough livelihood, right. To embark upon. Definitely. Definitely. And the environmental movement and any not NGO, any nonprofit, you know, exists based on the generosity of their patrons and their supporters. I mean, Pangea seed is no different. I'm sure all the great work you're doing, is because of your supporters, because of your donors, because of your benefactors and patrons. I mean, I feel like we need to take a couple of minutes at least to honor the people that support your work. And and I don't know if there's you know anybody in particular that you want to shout out to, but I, and I also want to make sure that people listening know how to support your work. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, as a nonprofit organization, you know, we are reliant on the generosity of individuals, you know, just like yourself and. Yeah. Like I said, you know, from our perspective, I didn't want to be kind of like the typical kind of like, I guess, you know, nonprofit organization model where you're just like, hey, donate, you know, but there's not a lot of transparency. And, you know, I felt that, you know, there's other ways to do that, that support artists and support our programs and so on. And like, you know, by purchasing the book, you know, that's a great way to support what we, what we do through our printed oceans program, you know, supporting by buying a print that helps what we do. And it supports the artists that, you know, help created the piece. And so we've got a shop, you know, like a lot of people do it, shop.pngsc.org. And you can go on there and you can purchase the book right now. You can, you know, look at the prints, you can purchase something there. We usually do things that are limited edition, you know, you know, incredible quality, you know, museum grade papers and, you know, really unique printing techniques. So everything that we create is a collector's item and it's unique, kind of one of a kind, you know, so to speak, kind of like, you know, species and, and the Just environment. Just like our well. oceans. We only yes. have one. Totally, yes. totally. So yeah, that's a great way to support what we do. I know like, I mean, through our experience, you know, during the pandemic, you know, the early days of that, it was scary because, you know, the first thing that people stopped doing was, you know, kind of like unnecessary spending, you know, donating and, you know, things like that. So yeah, we were, you know, there were a lot of, you know, I guess sleepless nights and, you know, big question marks, but internally we're nimble and we were able to pivot quite quickly. And I mean, to our surprise, the past two years have been some of the best years of our, 
you know, organization's history in terms of fundraising. And, and yet we've been really blown away by that. So, you know, people's generosity, I think, never ceases to amaze me. And it comes from different places at different times. We've been really fortunate enough to, you know, create some fantastic, like, corporate partners like Patagonia. We've been a grant recipient of theirs for years. Lust Natural Cosmetics, Volcom, if you're familiar with them, the Surf and Skate brand. Yeah, we're one of their charity partners. And actually, we have a special drop with them through this new thing that they call the DIY machine. And it's where people can kind of like choose an item and then kind of choose the placement for, you know, uh, and choose a graphic to go on it, you know, whether it's a hoodie or a tee, long sleeve shirt or something like that. You can choose kind of the spots where you want the hits and stuff like that. So you can go to, it's Volcom DIY machine. And we've got several designs up there right now that are running through Earth Month and then proceeds are going to go back to support what we do as well. So yeah, we're dropping the book. What else? We have a limited print edition that's coming out with a Filipino artist that we worked with named Kirby Rosanos. That's just absolutely stunning. He's featured in the book too. But that print drops on Friday. And then we're doing an event with the book through Network, if you're familiar with Network. Yeah, so we're doing that on Friday for Earth Day. So yeah, yeah, you know, we're this is definitely a time of year where people are kind of thinking about the environment and wanting to support and do things. So this is a great way to get people on board and, you know, do something unique together. You know, Trey, you said something that caught my ear and I want to go back. And if I'm out of line by asking this question, just tell me to fuck off. I, I, but I'm just curious because <laughs> no worries. you said something that if I heard it right, you said something about, you know, compensating the artist or you alluded to something about compensating the artist. You know, artists yeah. are notoriously asked to donate their time and energy and art to charitable causes or what have you. And of course, like what well, a lot of charities don't understand is that, you know, many artists are their own charity Definitely. in many ways, Definitely. right? It's a struggle out there. So talk a little bit about how you work with artists and do you compensate artists and how does that work? Because if you do, like that's a beautiful thing that I think really demonstrates and personifies your values as an organization. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about how you work with artists, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like through the Printed Oceans program that I was mentioning, like we offer like a percentage to make sure it's sustainable for them based on the sales of the print. So that way they're covered for their time. There's an incentive for them to promote it, you know, on their end and vice versa. So that's one thing that we do. And then through Seawall's Artists for Oceans, the, the public art program, depending on the program, because a lot of times we're taking this into communities where, you know, fundraising is incredibly challenging because we try to raise at least 80% of the funding locally to create that ownership. Because we found out early on that if you're bringing in foreign funding, it doesn't create ownership, you know. But if you're partnering with restaurants and you're partnering with hotels and, you know, businesses in that community, it creates that, you know, that legacy and that ownership. But for that, you know, like we fundraise to make sure that, you know, nothing comes out of the artist's pockets in terms of like, you know, paint materials, transportation, food, flights, anything like that, you know. So they're just there to experience the project you know, to do something special for that community. And then I think we go above and beyond, you know, because we want to give the artists an experience where they're not just stuck in a parking lot for a week, you know, which happens with a lot of like mural projects. And, you know, so we work with the community to do kind of like environmental and cultural excursions. Like we've taken artists out and dropped them in the water with whale sharks and manta rays, you know, but people that have never been in the ocean, you know, it creates these opportunities that, you know, are quite unique and really impact their practice and the way that they look at the world and create art and how their art can be used as a tool to, you know, create change. And then depending on the project as well, you know, uh, based on how, you know, much we're able to fundraise, we try to create an honorarium for the artist. So as a token of appreciation, and granted, it's nowhere near the commercial value of what, you know, an artwork would be. Yeah. But, you know, as a nonprofit organization, most of the artists are very, you know, understanding and they're yes. there because they want to help. They care yes. about our mission, what we're doing, and they understand that their artwork can have an impact on that community. Absolutely. Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, that it's that goes such a long way. All of what you said goes such a long way, right, to demonstrating to artists that, you know, you're obviously mission driven, but you're artist centric as well. And it's not just about yeah, really you know, strong as that artist network. Yeah. And, you know, and I've talked to, you know, it's funny, I've had conversations with other nonprofits in the past, you know, and I've said to them, I said, do you know what the normal average kind of gallery artist split is if a gallery sells a piece of art? And oftentimes they don't. And then I say, it's usually yeah. around 50, 50. And then their eyes go, what? <laughs> you know, they go, they, yeah, people are yeah, shocked, yeah. you know, by that. And the point is, is that, 
you know, you're acting as the gallery, you know, or a nonprofit can act as the guy. It's like, listen, you know, you keep 50%, they keep 50%. I mean, everybody wins and it's a beautiful thing. And, and everything you're doing is so fantastic for artists and for the cause. And that is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, one of the things that I have to tell you, it's sort of a, you know, my, because we're artist centric, because we're always trying to help artists. There is an art, ever since I was aware of your work, and you know, as I said, I've been appreciating your guys' work for quite a while now. But there is an artist that um, I got to give a shout out to, and I, you know, and I and I noticed you've got some ink on that left sleeve of yours, so you're a tattoo uh, collector <laughs> as well, correct? Right. So anyway, so there is an artist yeah, that yeah. I've known for there is an artist I've known for years that you may want to connect with, and his name is Bill Kiefer, uh, K I E F F E R, and Bill, his whole thing is fish. And in fact, he's and he's one of these multidisciplinary artists that cannot, you know, not only does he paint and sculpt and illustrate, but he's a tattoo artist as well. And he people have him tattoo his fish on their body as well. So anyway, I'm just going to give a shame. I'm just going to give a shameless plug to our friend Bill Kiefer. Yeah, uh, you know, on behalf of artists, you know, no, I I get I get nothing out of it except the satisfaction of just connecting good people. But yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it, man. We actually did a project with him a few years ago called City of Fish. We did it at the Long Beach Aquarium where um, essentially okay. he had sculpted this whole thing. And the, the idea of City of Fish was that, you know, what happens when the polar caps eventually melt and the oceans rise and flood the cities and the people flee, but the fish move in, <laughs> you know? And, right. and and what is the right. culture that, that happens of the, among the fish, you know, in the cities as they sort of take over? Anyway, pretty funny stuff. But Trey, I tell you what, man, I am so grateful for your time today to come and talk about the important work you're doing and the new book and how people can support. You know, I want you to know that we're always here for you. You're always welcome to come back on the show. I hope you come back. Anything that you Uh, ever want to promote or plug or talk about or whatever, if you just want to chop it up, something on your mind, we'd love, you know, you have an open door policy here, my friend, to come anytime and and chat and chop it up. Same, same. Reach out to us anytime. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I will do. And as we wrap up here, let's make sure everybody knows where to find you, how to support you, where to buy the book. So give us your socials before we head off. Yeah, definitely. So we're super active on social. It's at Pangea Seed or at Seawalls underscore. Those are the two main accounts. And then our websites, of course, is Pangeaseed.org and Seawalls.org. So pretty easy to remember and find. You know, we are a 501c3 tax deductible or tax exempt nonprofit. So, you know, any donations that could be made through our website are tax deductible. And yeah, you know, if you're in the giving mood, you care about the oceans, you care about art as, you know, a tool for change, you know, definitely look us up, learn more about what we do, see if we're coming to a city near you. There's all sorts of like ways to support what we do on the website laid out. So you can check that out too. And definitely follow us on social. Like I said, you know, we're super active. There's a lot of stuff going down this week with it being Earth Week. The drop of the book, Sea Change and Decade of Artivism for Oceans, is out now. You can purchase it right now on our shop, shop.pangeasy.org. We've got the drop of Volcom right now for the DIY machine featuring a really cool artwork created by an artist named Spring Break Jake. This face out of Bend, Oregon. Really rad guy. And what else do we got? We're working with Sperry, if you're familiar with that shoe company, Sperry. Yes, yes. They made like the iconic top cider, you know? So we've been working with them for the past several months and we're releasing a specific shoe and they have really dug into sustainability over the past couple of years and are starting to release a series of of new shoes based on, you know, kind of like a closed loop kind of production cycle and, you know, like reclaimed leather and, you know, recycled plastic bottles and things like that. So it's really exciting. So we worked with multiple artists to create animation pieces that told the story of these specific shoes. So that's coming out this week. Yeah. So definitely check us out. We're always into something. And the other thing I was going to mention was we're all, you know, as a nonprofit organization, we're only as strong as our, you know, our network. So if anybody's interested in, you know, learning how they can support us, you know, internally, maybe like interning or, you know, different things like that, volunteering on projects on the ground, reach out to us too. Fantastic. I mean, I got to admit, Trey, I mean, you look too well rested. I mean, how are you like with everything going on with with every with everything going on? I can't imagine you sleep much and yet you look well rested. I mean, how how the (laughs) do you ever sleep? Like, what the the hell? Yeah. 
I mean, definitely like that's something that like I'm in my mid forties now. So I kind of got hit by, you know, the wall a couple of years back and like sleep and water, I think are two of the key things to kind of like, you know, keeping the engine going. So I do like, I really try to make sure that I'm getting X amount of sleep each night. And, you know, I'm very, you know, aware of like, you know, my staying hydrated. So I think those are the two keys, but yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been a grind you know, getting to where we are right now with the book and, you know, the push for Earth Week and everything that's going on. So next week, my wife and I, we're just taking the week off and we're just going to staycation. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm based in Hawaii. I think that's another thing is like, you know, not having to deal with harsh winters and things like that. Like, it's an incredible place to live, incredible community. And yeah, I feel very fortunate to be based out here. Mahalo. <laughs> Mahalo, my friend. <laughs> Well, Trey Packard, you might get my- Are you in LA? We are. Yes, we're in LA and been here. uh, Well, I hail from Chicago originally, lived in Canada for a bit, as I mentioned. And then I moved to LA in 01 to be with my girlfriend at the time. Now my wife, soon to be my ex-wife. Just kidding. So we've got two (laughs) kids here, uh, nine and five, but I've been in the arts my whole life. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I noticed- over the years is that if there's one thing most artists agree on is that they would like some help telling their stories and promoting their work. And so that's why I started not real art, the podcast, the blog, the, we have an artist grant, we have a conference artist conference. Everything is about elevating and empowering artists and helping them tell their stories and and promote their work. And so the podcast is congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we have a big vision. We'd love to build the ESPN for the creative arts. This is our dream, our vision. We'll see how it goes. But in the meantime, well, let's we keep just in touch, love- man. Like, I'd love to collaborate. Oh, right on, Trey. For sure, brother. For sure. I will do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're actually in the process of starting filing for a 501c3 as well. And uh, we have the, we have the, yeah, thank you. We have the for-profit arm. But one of the things that we've realized is that a lot of people- want to fund, you know, media related projects, whether it be, you know, movies or TV shows or radio shows or what have you all arts focused. Sure. But of course, you know, the media content business is a loser from a money-making perspective. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like like we're drowning in content, but having that nonprofit, people will write a check to fund an independent movie or fund a, a arts related media project. And so, so we're standing that up right now. And so, yeah, I would love to collaborate, brother. Like, well, I'll take you up on definitely, that. Definitely, sure. definitely. Like I did some research on your website, you know, and, and saw about the grant, you know, platform that you're offering to artists. And that's something that we're wanting to expand on more. So I'd love to like pick your brain at some point. Maybe there's a way we could cross over and do like, you know, a not real art times Pangea seed kind of like, you know, grant or something like that. I'd love that. That'd be great. Yeah. Let's talk about that. That'd be fantastic. Anything Definitely. we can do together to help each other. We share values. We, we are like-minded and we have a common cause. So Definitely. I'm grateful for that. But Dan, by the way, fun fact, we're producing our first comedy event tonight. So wish us luck. Because oh, congratulations. We've, <laughs> Where can we see that? Yeah. Well, you know, we, we love to laugh over here, as you might notice with a name like Not Real Art, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Some things are too important to take seriously. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, we, you know, so we love comics, we love comedy. And so after I sign off here, I'm going to head over to the comedy club to get set up. We've got four comics doing 20 minutes. It's comedy for 20. And and, uh, amazing amazing so it'll be it'll be a good time so wish you could come cool cool but i know man if i was there i definitely would i definitely would but before we go i can't let you off the hook i gotta uh, like know how did you end up near churchill how did that happen because again <laughs> with it being such you know an off-the-grid location like and the people that we met up there everybody had such interesting stories of why they were there or how they ended up there so i i, I gotta hear yours real quick Okay, I'll try to give you the Cliff Notes version. So, okay, sounds good. When I was in college back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was working full time at a publishing company. And that publishing company was specialized in outdoor related titles, you know, mountaineering, rafting, camping, canoeing. And the owner of the company actually had built a log cabin near Churchill back in 1975. And in 1989, July of 1989, I was invited to go on a quote unquote company trip with a bunch of our authors who were all like PhDs and outdoor rec and, you know, mountain climbers, Mm -hmm. whatever. And, you know, I'm this 19 year old kid from Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago. 
and I go to Churchill. I take, I go to Winnipeg, I get on the Via Rail, I take the train to Churchill. We charter a 185 Cessna with canoe strapped to the pontoon, you know, fly into the bush, 88 air miles, you know, upstream on the Churchill River. They dump us off at this cabin. And we lived off the land for a few days in this cabin. What an adventure, man. And then we canoed out 120 miles to Churchill, Hudson Bay, right? Well, it changed my life. It was just like, you know what? This is the fucking coolest thing ever. I just feel like I've, you know, hit the jackpot. Well, I had talked to the owner of the company. I said, because I knew that there had been like a couple of people through the years that have stayed at the cabin. And long story short, I pitched Mm -hmm. him an idea. I said, what would you say if I told you I wanted to go live at your cabin for a year? And he said, when do you want to go? (laughs) (laughs) And so long story short, the company ended up sponsoring this expedition and a buddy and I trained for a year and a half, survival skills, medical skills, you know, the whole thing. And in January of 91, we chartered a De Havilland Otter out of Thompson, Manitoba, Mm-hmm. to drop us off on a frozen lake there at 33 degrees below zero. It was 67 degrees below zero that night, my first night. And we lived oh We lived in the bush, cut off, no mail, no phones, no electricity, no plumbing, nothing for the better part of a year. And it changed my life. It was the best thing that ever happened to me, best choice I ever made. Incredible, man. I'd love to see photographs, whatever you had sometime. I'd love to see it. I'll send you a link. There's a website where we sort of curate some stuff. And it was funny because because in Churchill, we were the crazy Americans. Like the pilot that flew us in were like, you crazy Americans. Like, what are you going to do? And we became kind of these (laughs) local celebrities. And it's kind of funny because when we do, when I go back to Churchill, you know, people say, you know, you're that guy that lived in the bush. (laughs) (laughs) That's <laughs> like, yeah, that was me. That's great. <laughs> anyway, well, that's Trey, yeah. Packer, yeah. thank you, man. Thank you for asking. That's very sweet. I love that. I feel like a lucky dude to be able to have had that experience and to share it with people who actually give a shit means a lot. So thank you for that. Yeah, definitely send me that link, man. I'd love to see it. You got it, partner. You got it. Well, hey. Yeah, thank you again for the opportunity to share our story on Not Real Art today. And yeah, you know, let us know like how we can plug it on our end you know, once it's up and yeah, super excited to to share this with our network too. You got it, Trey. Thanks so much, brother. Have a great night. Yeah. Happy 420. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcasts and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.